<laughs> Your husband is in the middle of interviewing me and you've called it a very inopportune moment. Hi there, I'm Ian Rankin and you're listening to the Dimmick's Book Lover Podcast. I am Ruby Wax and you're listening to the Dimmick's Podcast. I'm Michael Palin and you're listening to the Dimmick's Podcast. Hi, I'm Rachel Treasure and you're listening to the Dimmick's Podcast. Someone said to me, do you think you'll ever grow up? (laughs) Hopefully not. That would be very boring. I'd like to introduce Cheryl Stray to the Dimmicks podcast. Hello, Cheryl. Hello, it's great to be here. You're here for the uh, Sydney Writers Festival. I am. We're we're looking out on, is it the Sydney Bay? Sydney Harbour. We have a (laughs) lovely view from Walsh Bay looking at the old... Uh, docks, and you know, we're, we're blessed to have a you know a view of the harbour, which people pay millions for. So, you're, I hope you enjoy Sydney. We're living large in Sydney. We're, we're living large. <laughs> now, uh, for the few people that don't know about Cheryl's two books, the her, her most famous ones, one called Wild: A Journey of Lost and Found, and we'll talk about that a little bit. And her more recent books, one called Tiny Beautiful Things, a very different book and I'd imagine a different experience in writing. Tell me about the history of Tiny Beautiful Things, how you got to write that. Tiny Beautiful Things is the book I wrote by accident. That doesn't mean it wasn't hard to write, but I I really, uh, it came to me by surprise. In March of 2012, I had just finished the first polished draft of Wild and sent it off to my editor and was waiting for her notes Mm -hmm. when I received an email from my friend, the writer Steve Almond who's just a fantastic American writer of fiction and nonfiction. And he said, Cheryl, I have been writing this advice column for this website called The Rumpus anonymously. The, this, the advice column is called Dear Sugar. It doesn't have any following. I'm not interested in writing it. It doesn't pay anything. Would you like to take it over? Um, which I, I laughed because that essentially you know, described my, my entire career until that point. What, <laughs> and, taking over other take, people's well, things? You or... know, not having any following, not being paid oh. for it. <laughs> and I said, sure, even though I didn't have any sense of a right to, to, be, to be the sort of person who would give someone else advice, I wasn't licensed in any way, mm-hmm. didn't take psychology classes or, or go through therapy myself. Um, but pretty quickly, I, I just thought it just seemed interesting because what does a writer do anyway but essentially contemplate all of those situations that I would be presented with, people's struggles and mm-hmm. sorrows and secrets and deepest conundrums. And um, I was asked to contemplate those in the form of the sugar column. Anonymous people would write to me, this anonymous person called Sugar, and they would. it could be about sex, it could be about romance, it could be about money or mm. relationships with one's parents or children. And I responded with these often meandering essays, essentially, in which I often told stories from my own life. And so it's interesting you said these two books are so different, Wild and Tiny Beautiful Things. And and I and I and I think you're right. I mean, obviously, one's a memoir about a long wilderness trek I took in my twenties. The other is advice columns. But I do think that the heart, the core of these books, is is essentially the same. Mm-hmm. That really, there's this great spirit of delving into those deep questions of how how is it that we not only survive but thrive. And how was it writing anonymously? Did that empower you? Do you think? 
it was really fun. I don't think it actually empowered me. Um, and here's the reason why. I knew that someday I would put my name on those columns. And so my experience of the, the column was temporary anonymity. And so everything I wrote, for example, when I would tell stories about my marriage, I knew that, that I had to be careful with anything that I said I wanted to be able to stand behind as Cheryl Strayed because it would someday be my name mm -hmm. attached to them. So it was more for me an experiment in what does it feel like to, to have an audience who doesn't know that you're an American woman in her 40s with two kids. Um, you know, all of those, those, those judgments we make about each other based on a kind of surface description like that. And so that was kind of freeing in that regard. I think um, I could be in the, you know, the, the column, you know, it went from when I took it over having no following to having this cult following online. And I think that what happened is that I could be anything anyone imagined. Um, that whoever, whoever they, you know, so many people had these ideas of who Sugar was. There was even a question of whether I was a woman. <laughs> and even though in so many of the columns I do tell stories from my life, and so pretty quickly I painted a, a picture of myself, and it was an accurate picture. People would doubt that and say, well, what if this is all a trick? And it wasn't. I was very sincere about what, what I, who I represented myself as being. Are there any of the... Uh you know, letters or, you know, queries for advice that are the most memorable for you or that you, you couldn't respond to? Well, there are so many that are memorable. Really, all of the letters and tiny, beautiful things, I think, in and of themselves, they're, they're fascinating, aren't they? Have you read the book? You know, I, I have, and it's, it, it's like a, nearly a voyeuristic insight into people's lives because it, because it's anonymous, they're not... Um, they're not sort of wedded to a personality so you you feel like you're in a way being let into someone's intimate details that you don't get in the real world often that's right and and you are being let in many times people would say in their letters to me that they'd never told anyone this thing before this thing that they, they just wrote to me this anonymous person they sent it through this this form on the website and i really felt honored by that that people would share with me and that they would risk that vulnerability. And I think that they did that because they know uh, that as Sugar really, one of my tenets is un unconditional positive regard, that I really would respond with, with honesty and sometimes a, a toughness, I think. You know, I would say things that are hard to hear, but always with a lot of love and compassion. I never felt judgmental of anyone I answered. Um, and I have thousands more letters that I didn't answer that are in my inbox. And, and it's not that they're not worthy of an answer, but um, for, for, I couldn't get them to them all. And so you asked if any of these are memorable. I think that, that several of them in Tiny Beautiful Things are for different reasons. There's a column called The Obliterated Place that is written uh, by a man in his 60s whose um, only child, his son, when he was 22, was killed by a drunk driver. And his grief is so tremendous. His grief is just, just life, like you know, just soul crushing. And he writes to me and says, "How can I be human? Help me be human." And so that was a big one for me to undertake, and and I'll never forget it. I'll never forget the experience of trying to address that. Um, and then there are others that are more lighthearted. Um, and there's this this one. These two women who have written to me separate letters coincidentally about they 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 both slept with the same man 
and they were friends with each other and they have a conflict about this. Um, and it, the column is, this is what we call a clusterfuck. And it's, you know, <laughs> and it, so that was fun, even though they were presenting me with a serious conundrum. I must say I got to have a little fun with it, you know, because I'm a 40-something woman looking back, talking to these 20-something women who, who are really in the midst of this great sexual drama that 20 years from now they're just going to shake their heads and laugh. And I, I think, I don't, I don't know if every generation says times has changed with regards to that stuff, but it feels like times have changed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny about that. Times have changed and yet we remain the same. And, and that is one of the things about the experience of being Dear Sugar and, and writing Tiny Beautiful Things is how universal our problems are and how, and how ageless. I mean, so often I heard from readers that they would read the question, the letter, that was sent to me. And they would think, oh, well, this one doesn't apply to me. And then they would read my answer and they, were, they would realize it was exactly what they needed to hear. Because as Sugar, what I did, I tried to make that connection between, okay, we've got these two young women, you know, in this scenario I just presented, who've slept with the same man and, and they're, they're all unhappy about it. And what about that is specific to that moment in your life, in your 20s, when you're often trying to figure out you know what what you're doing and who you're going to sleep mm. with, and 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 what about that is is universal, and and uh, how does that um, how do we learn from that situation no matter where we are in our lives whether we're 16 or 76, and so that was one of my great endeavors as, as Sugar really trying to transcend the genre to to you know by no means did I decide to stick to this advice column form I really wanted to make my column a literary form. And what that required was reaching really far and going big with every question. And, and I, th I think for the people that haven't yet uh, read Tiny Beautiful Things, that's what does come through. The, not only is it genuine, humorous, heartfelt, honest, it's, you know, it's also non, not politically correct, which, in, which is quite refreshing in this day. <laughs> Thank you, thank you. It's also profane. I do, I do like mm. to curse as sugar, and sometimes in real life too. I hate to tell you. Well, we've we've already noted that on the Dimmicks podcast, but we've, <laughs> we've got a, a, a non bleep policy here. Um, you're very engaged with social media. How have you, you know, Facebook and Twitter? How have you found that in the different form as a writer? I really love social media, and I think that I'm fortunate to just simply have. Uh, you know, a, a natural inclination to, to to social media. My friends who are writers, as we know, writers come in all shapes and sizes when it comes to personalities. And, you know, some are more social, others are more introverted. And I think that whenever your publisher has to say to you, as, as many of my friends' publishers have said, okay, you have a book coming out, you've got to start a Twitter you know, feed or you've got to open up a Facebook account. And they say, no, I don't want to. And I was fortunate that, that nobody was asking me to do that. So everything that I, you know, that I started posting on, on Twitter and Facebook was really you know, something that, that just sort of came out of my own desire to reach out um, and not really conceiving of it as an audience, but just a network of friends and so I love to share. I often post about other writers, um, causes that I'm concerned about. And so it's very natural for me, too, to, to have a kind of um, 
an open dialogue with then what's become, you know, really a rather large group of readers, you know, with, with pu the publication of Wild. And so I love it. I think it's, it's fun and interesting. Yeah, I, 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 it's definitely changed the world radically in the last few years, hasn't it? It has. It has. And there's so much, I think, that still needs to be figured out about it. One of the things I think over and over again is how fortunate I am that that social media didn't exist when I was a teenager and in my 20s. Mm -hmm. Really, I, I mean that sincerely because I think that I would have crossed um, too many boundaries and, and I would have said idiotic things that I later regretted. And it, it's not that I don't say idiotic things now. I certainly do several times a day. But there's a, there's a different... Um, maybe I'm less quick to post those things on social media pages, you know. So I, I do think that it, it's both a gift and a curse, um, and it's co it's complex. But yeah. I will say, sugar, you know, the Dear Sugar column, it it lived on the internet. That's mm. where it was invented, and that's where it it thrived. It was only after it succeeded online that it became a book. Oh, that's interesting. Now, um, talking about Wild, your first renowned book. And then obviously a torch that's I yes. had a bit of a resurgence of recently, but fifteen hundred kilometers in the wild. Seventeen hundred. Okay. <laughs> we will have Let's the, do the math. <laughs> Eleven hundred miles. What is Eleven hundred miles. It's about. We'll, we'll uh, work it out. I'll take seventeen hundred. <laughs> Either way, it's a long way. <laughs> I keep hearing different uh, mile, you know, kilometer uh, numbers. So a long way. You're right. So. The first thing that occurred to me, what prompted you to do this? I really came to the PCT out of a place of desperation and despair. I was uh, 26, and my mother had died four years before, when I was 22, and she was 45. She died really suddenly of cancer, and she was really my only parent. I had a stepfather who I loved dearly, but who, after my mother died, essentially couldn't go on being a, a father to me. And I had siblings, but we, in the, in the wake of our mother's death, everything just fell apart. And I was young enough that even though I was, you know, technically an adult and moving into living, you know, a life independent of my family, I still really needed my family and mm -hmm. I still really needed my mom. And I was just absolutely devastated by her death and, and, and didn't know how to live in the world without her. And also how to bear the fact that I would have to live the rest of my life without her. That was just so tremendous. And so what happened is, in that grief, I, my sorrow turned inward, and I really began to self-destruct. I was married to someone at the time. I married really young, someone I really loved. And I did things you're not supposed to do when you're married. Um, I was unfaithful and deceitful and really wildly promiscuous, like a lot of young women, I think at that age, you know, there's th that one of the ways to kind of act out self-destruction ends up being sexual. Mm -hmm. And, and I also, one of the people I got involved with was a heroin addict and, and he introduced me to heroin and I began using heroin as well. And so it was at this place, you know, even though I was using heroin, I also could recognize that this was so the wrong thing to do. And I really reached a place where I thought, well, why am I even here? It was the first time, and, and really the only time, fortunately, in my life that, that I felt like maybe that, that, that it would be better if I wasn't here, that I maybe should die. 
and I didn't know why I should go on. And so I felt that way, but I also had that thing within me, that, that true voice that, was, that knew that I needed to find a way and, 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 and to not just survive, but to thrive. And that my mother was a piece of that, that she had raised me to be the person, um, I guess that I am today, that I wasn't then. And I needed to figure out how to get back on track. And so I just was really searching for that at this moment that I came upon a guidebook in, an, in a wilder, an outdoor equipment store in Minnesota where I grew up. And it was called the Pacific Crest Trail, Volume 1, California. And it told, I just flipped it over and read the back of the book. And it, in a paragraph, it just told the story of this national scenic trail that goes from the Mexican border um, to the Canadian border through California, Oregon, and Washington along the western United States. Um, not on the coast, but up the crest of the Sierra Nevada and the Cascade Range. And I just thought, maybe if I go to that place and attach myself to that beautiful, grand thing, I can gather myself. So I did. What, is there something about nature that you know, made that process happen easier? I think, I think that there's everything about nature that, that restores us and heals us. I think it's a rare person who doesn't go into the wild and feel better. Um, you know, we all, I mean, really, there's probably one listener out there who's shaking his or her head, you know. But, but most of us, it doesn't even take much, right? You go to, into a park, it can be in the middle of a city, and suddenly you're at an, in a place where, you know, it, it's not just about the human world. It's not just about the constructed world, the manufactured world. It's about the natural world. And that there's this grand and indisputable beauty and integrity um, in that. And, and there's just a feeling I think most of us get that, uh, that there's a, it quiets us, it brings us perspective, it, it allows us to get still for a moment and to really think about who we are and what our purpose is. And the majority of people would probably just go for a one-hour walk. Exactly. <laughs> well, yes, that, that's, you know, good point. <laughs> good point. Well, how long of a walk would you go on? Look, I, I would probably, I would do an overnight hike. Uh-huh. 1,700 kilometres. <laughs> or, or 1,500. Yeah, well, yeah. well, well, I mean, my, my, my question is, did you think you'd make it to the end? Did you go in with an agenda to finish the trail? Was that was what was guiding you, as well as, you know, the major issues of grief and finding yourself and things like that? Or were you just walking? Or how did... Well, I went out there seeking a cure. I went out there because I wanted to heal my heart and to right my little boat mm. that had really gone amiss as we look at the boats out here. Um, and, I, and I guess that I, I had a little bit of a, a feeling that that would maybe be um, a, a very solitary, you know, I went alone, and a very beautiful experience because I would be in this magnificent landscape. And I get out there, and what I find is it's so much harder than I think it's going to be. My pack is so heavy I can't even lift it on the first day of my hike. I, had, I began hiking in the Mojave Desert. There was no water. I had to carry my, enough water to last for a few days until I would reach my first water source. And so it was just a tremendously difficult thing physically. Everything hurt. Mm. But within about a day or two, everything hurt but my heart. And until that point, the thing that had been hurting so much was my heart. 
And I get out there and I'm pulled out of that, I'm pulled out of my head and into the body. And my concerns aren't, wow, did I, did I make a mistake in ruining this marriage I had? And how will I live without my mother? And what did I do? Why did I do that heroin stuff? And how, why have I, you know, really gone in so many ways against the, my own values in behaving the way I, I had behaved? And instead, I'm thinking, where's the next water source? And how am I going to get over this mountain? And, and wow, that, you know, those sounds of the coyotes at night, what a, what a magnificent thing. And so everything shifted, and my suffering became physical suffering, and truly, I suffered physically. There, anyone who's read Wild knows that this was a big physical trial. And um, it led to some comedy, I will say, in writing Wild, but in the moment, wasn't very funny. <laughs> Cheryl Strait, thank you so much for contributing to the Dimmicks podcast and enjoy the rest of your trip in Australia. That was great. Thanks. Oh, thank you. I love being in Australia. Mm-hmm.